I'm Oded Rehavi, a biologist from Tel Aviv University in the Department of Neurobiology, part of the Life Sciences Faculty. And um, I've been studying many different topics. The, the main topic that we focus on is epigenetic inheritance in C. elegans nematodes. Many different topics doesn't adequately encapsulate the diverse research interests of neuroscientist Oded Rehavi. After a year abroad as an art student in Paris, Oded decided to return to Israel to study neuroscience for his bachelor's degree. He's been at it ever since. Besides his work on epigenetics in nematode worms, Oded and his lab have also tackled a 2,000-year-old archaeological mystery turned a notorious brain pathogen into a vehicle for delivering drugs to the central nervous system and examined the rationale behind irrationality. Oded somehow also manages to find the time to run one of the most popular science social media accounts. Oded was elected an EMBO member in 2021, and we spoke with him this September. Welcome to the EMBO podcast. In the late 1940s, a Bedouin shepherd discovered the first of what would turn out to be over 25,000 text fragments of over 1,000 ancient manuscripts, the 2,000-year-old Dead Sea Scrolls found in the Qumran caves of the Judean desert are a biblical jigsaw puzzle. The scrolls were mainly written on the skins of domestic sheep, cows, and goats. Taking advantage of advances in ancient DNA sequencing and phylogenetic analysis technology, Oded led an effort to use genetics to help understand how to group and organize the scrolls, an effort that culminated in a highly cited 2020 research paper. Some molecular biologists might be tempted to see it as a story of science solving a mystery that had long baffled the humanities. For Oded, it was a chance to learn and have some fun with a diverse group of colleagues. So I learned so much from them, uh, especially from Noam Mizrahi, who was our main collaborator, the biblical scholar uh, on our team. And uh, you can say like that, that we solved, uh, you know, we helped them uh, do something that they couldn't do otherwise, but it really wasn't the case. I mean, that wasn't the motivation. The motivation was to do something interesting with colleagues that enrich you because they come from such a different place. And I think that's in many cases, that's the that's a real motivation of what drives you. It's just sheer interest or uh, that's the challenge of it. It's not necessarily solving a problem, at least for me. In that case, it was just fun. It was so uh, so much fun to just uh, try this even that we decided to do it. Uh, and um, and it stood, it worked out. And I hope that it was uh, beneficial also for the understanding of the scores, that we added something. But the motivation was just having fun and talking to different people to really you know, get out of your comfort zone. And, and, and this is, I think, how, how new things emerge. Uh, in my field, for example, transgenerational epigenetic inheritance, I feel that I'm, you know, I'm becoming more and more limited because I'm already used to thinking about it in a certain way and think about the limitation and what's possible. And, and uh, when it comes to a completely different field, that's where you, know, you have uh, a lot more room to be creative. Uh, that reminds me of a conversation I had a, a long time ago with, with Niles Eldridge, who had put forward punctuated equilibrium uh, theory when he was a student with, with Stephen Jay Gould as, as his collaborator. And it was uh, attacked uh, very severely. And then it 
sort of it, not everyone uh, it, and it's in, by no means consensual, but it became um, part of the mainstream discussion. And years later, when he was already a senior scholar, we were having some caipirinhas in Brazil, and he got this very, very sort of disappointed, far away look, and he said, "You know, now I'm respectable." I think this is very true. Also, when it comes to transgenerational inheritance, it's not that it's that there's no controversy about it whatsoever, but when we just started, that was the first paper that I published on it with Oliver Robert, my uh, postdoc advisor. That was uh, back then in 2011, that was completely new. And we got crazy emails from creationists and interesting things like that. And since then, since uh, we and many other uh, labs learned a lot about the mechanisms, I think that RNA inheritance in C. elegans is no longer controversial. Also because it's so easy to do, anyone can just, you know, put worms, feed worms on, on RNA, on double-strand RNA and get a transgenerational response. So that's very, very reproducible. So there's no controversy. The controversy now is whether this is also happening in other organisms. That's an open question. And, and there, as you, as you know very well, it's still very, very controversial. But intellectually, I think for me, it's less interesting. No. We have a few model organisms. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it happens in humans. It's important, but it's less interesting, if you know what I mean. I think it's, 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 it's what will eventually decide how important this is. But the biology is there. It, it can happen. Before that, it was thought to be impossible against the rules. And now we know that, at least in one of the main uh, models of biology, it uh, certainly happened. Let's assume that it goes the other way. Let's assume that C. elegans, for example, is, um, is uniquely... Uh, it, uh, prone to transgenerational uh, epigenetic inheritance. Do you think there's anything in, in the ecology and uh, uh, the biology of C. elegans uh, in the wild that, that could justify a, a predisposition of this kind? Yeah, we can, we can speculate. We can speculate that there would be uh, because the generation time is so short. So the chances that the parents' environment will be relevant for the children's environment are high. Uh, because they probably, they also don't go very far. So the chances are that the kids will experience the same environmental conditions, which is why it's worthwhile to prepare them. There's also, um, perhaps because there's less genetic variability between individuals coming from the same uh, mother, uh, more room for epigenetic variation. That's possible. However, um, that doesn't have to be the case uh, because some stresses or some environmental changes are very long lasting. And we, even as humans with a generation time of 20 years or more, still experience the same changes or the same environment that our parents did. This is true, for example, for some viruses that we encounter more over and over. In theory, it would be worthwhile mm. to be prepared in advance. I'm not saying that it happens, but we can find challenges like this. But I think that if we, if we even flip it again, that even if it was just an, a, a worm thing, an, a nematode thing, and, and I, I, I don't believe this is the case because I don't think we were that lucky. But even that, if that was the case, then four out of five animals on this planet are, are worms. So in terms of relevance, it's extremely relevant, uh, just in terms of numbers of individuals. And if we think about the ecology, worms affect every process on Earth, the exchange of gases with the atmosphere, everything. So I think that would be it's it's possibly important even if it's not conserved in in humans or in mammals. But I, but I think that, and this is a, you know just guess a guess that even if the exact same mechanism 
isn't conserved, and this remains to be seen, it's too good of a trick to give up. That's what I, I, I believe. But, 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 you know, I could be totally wrong. Well, one of, one of the fascinating aspects of, of your work um, is how regulated the process is, right? So this, this isn't, uh, it, it's taken on a, a very well-defined contour to the extent that you felt comfortable putting out rules uh, for, for epigenetic inheritance in, in C. elegans. And, and one of them, I think the first one, is that the RNAs are very, very evenly distributed so that you have very low variability in the progeny of a, of a, single, of a single worm. So just to give me an idea, how big is that progeny? The average progeny is around 250 worms per mother. And, origin, and, and first, in the first generation, there's really not much variability. But then there are mechanisms that intentionally introduce variability, just like there are mechanisms for introducing genetic variability, recombination, and so on. Uh, here, there are mechanisms that intentionally generate epigenetic variability. And we think of it, again, we could be wrong as a sort of a, perhaps a bet hedging mechanism where, where uh, one of the, pro where a few individual will individuals will be, will be more successful than the others because of these uh, epigenetic changes. So there, there are rules. It's not just an epiphenomenon or a, a carryover of the parental responses, but we, we are just at the beginning of understanding that. We don't have a, a quantitative measurements of that. We don't know the stoichiometry of how much RNA is being inherited and how many RNAs, how many small mm -hmm. RNAs do you need per target, for example. Uh, these type of things, we are only at the beginning. And, and there are many open questions. And as you said, it's not so surprising now that there would be an epigenetic uh, response propagating to the next generation. That won't be enough now to get you a paper in cell. While it was a, a, a few years ago, now you have to, to go beyond it. But there are a few open questions which are very, very big, like can epigenetic inheritance, which is typically transient, affect the process of evolution? You know, when you think of that, it's something that takes a long time to, uh, to happen. Or, and uh, what type of responses can transmit transgenerationally? Can uh, the brain coordinate these responses? Um, and also many mechanistic questions of how exactly uh, it works, which are still left open. How, how representative do you think C. elegans is of this vast diversity of nematodes? How, how much do people look outside um, their worm? So people look more and more. Also, when it comes to uh, Canorobditi species, people look more and more and more. That's now a part of many, many uh, papers. And there, there are many similarities, but there are also very big differences between uh, different worms. If, if you just look at the, or even nematodes, or even uh, closely related uh, uh, cyanobarabditis. Uh, for example, if you look at the transgenerational inheritance, the mechanisms that exist in other related nematodes, closely related nematodes, you see that it changes very rapidly and evolve, evolves quickly. Many, um, even, even wild isolates of C. elegans, so it's still a C. elegans, many of them don't have RNA inheritance. RNA doesn't work. Now, if Sidney Brenner happened to pick a worm, not from Bristol, England, but from another place, from uh, Hawaiian or something, and we work with an Hawaiian strain, and maybe none of this would have been discovered. Uh, and uh, part of the, the, the reason is that it's, um, it's, uh, it's an arms race between the RNA system and all kinds of mobile elements. 
um, that they that they defend against. So it's it's very fastly evolving, and I'm sure that the same is also true for the nervous system, which which evolves fast. And 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 comparing different nervous systems of related worms is a very promising field that is growing, and people are doing this. And I'm sure that it will discover uh, fascinating things. Um, but many of the things that were discovered in worms in C. elegans are also conserved and in many other organisms. If you think about the Nobel Prizes, so RNAi and um, some of the mechanisms of cell death, uh, th- this is all conserved. And also, if you look at the synapse and the genes that function in synapses in humans, they are all called, there are many of them are called ANC this and ANC that. ANC comes from uncoordinated. This is the original screen that Sidney Brenner did where he uh, mutagenized worms and looked for worms that move funny. And many of the worms that move funny, when he mapped and other people mapped the genes involved, were found to, f- to function in synapses and to be conserved in, in humans as well. And, and that despite the fact that until recently, we didn't even know if worms have action potential. Uh, now, uh, th- th- so that's uh, just uh, very recently it was discovered that worms do have action potentials, but many of the neurons probably don't have them. And also the action potentials that they have are based on calcium. In December of last year, Oded won the Schmidt Science Polymath Award. The Polymath Prize grants half a million dollars a year for five years. The Polymath Award is not linked to any specific project, avoiding the usual gauntlet of milestones and deliverables, and allowing Oded and his team to explore new areas of research. I think one, one thing now that we are obligated to ask you in any interview is, um, so congratulations on the 2.5 million you got on this Polymath Prize, which everyone dreams about. What are you going to do with it? Well, I'm, I'm checking many different directions. One of the things that we're more and more invested in now is mechanisms for uh, controlling the duration of memory, even within the same generation. We have a very interesting phenomenon that we discovered that the lab is gravitating towards, and I hope to preprint it uh, soon. But very uh, broadly, we found that a very simple manipulation extends the, the duration of memories that are acquired within the same generation in C. elegans tenfold by tenfold. That's very, and we are studying the mechanism. It's very, very interesting. So I'm, I'm putting more and more resources into that. But in addition, I dream of finding another organism, another model organisms for standing transgenerational inheritance, and preferably a very different organism. Uh, and I have a few candidates in mind that uh, I want to, to develop. But we're also studying really, really different uh, things in the lab. And the nice thing about this is that uh, uh, they encourage you, the, the Polymath uh, Prize, uh, Schmidt's uh, uh, Futures Foundation, they encourage you to, to try to do this, to take the risk. And, you know, even if it doesn't work, that's okay, as long as, as, as you try. So, um, so I'm not, I won't say I'm bored from what I'm doing now, but I really want to, to do new things to, to keep uh, the fire going. I think that's the biggest challenge, to keeping really excited about it. It's not easy. Uh, especially during the pandemics, I think. <laughs> yes, I guess it's a, it's an introspective, involuntarily introspective period, probably. Right. <laughs> um, also, one of the things that, that you're working on that I, I believe is already, there's already been a preprint is this very interesting idea of, well, we can't get drugs in the brain, let's get a professional. And so you're mining uh, toxoplasma as a, as a delivery system right, for, for, for brain therapeutics. How's that going? 
that's going well. Uh, we pre-printed it a million years ago, perhaps in 2018 or something like that, or 19, I don't remember. The paper is under revision. I hope it will be published uh, soon, but it's going well. What we did there is we, we, um, we used the fact that toxoplasma gondii reaches the brain very effectively, also in, uh, in humans, and can deliver its own proteins to the cytosol of infected neurons. It gets cleaned from the rest of the body by the immune system. So we hijacked a few uh, secretion systems that it uses to do so to deliver proteins of interest that are missing in certain uh, uh, neurological diseases. And in the preprint, uh, we've shown that this is possible and it works well with uh, a few proteins. As part of the revision, and it's not that there's been a million back and forth with the journal. In fact, it was just us sitting on it and doing more and more experiments. We show that it also works in, in mice very efficiently. We don't know how to work with mice. This was done with collaborators. And uh, it works very nicely in, in mice. So that would be a part of the revision. And I think that really puts it in a, in a new level because it works. That, that, that I have to say that this project is now getting out of my lab. So I won't be working on it because we licensed the patent to a company that will try to, to actually translate it. Uh, into a, a drug delivery platform. So once this is over, I won't work on it anymore. But I'm still very interested in symbiosis and using different pathogens or symbionts to do good things outside of, of toxoplasma as well. So, so this is something that interests me a lot, and I hope to have additional ideas that I can test. I, I get a little bit of a feeling uh, from from what you're saying that you 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 may feel that it's time to move on uh, to something heretical again. Do you do you have a sense of what that might be? Yeah. So yes, I, I it's, it's everything that you just said. So combining experimental evolution with uh, epigenetic inheritance is something that we're doing. We're also examining to what extent can the nervous system coordinate this. Is it enough to just think of something? For, uh, for a change to ensue. Think um, as worms think, you know, not like we think. And, um, and also questioning the, some of the very basic assumptions regarding the mechanism. There are many assumptions made, many of them because things have been seen in other organisms. There's a lot of, many studies, excellent studies on epigenetic inheritance in, uh, in certain fungi, in plants, and some of the things that we think happen, we think uh, because they were shown in other systems, but it's not entirely true. And also the phenomenon, the phenomena that are being uh, described are, are not exactly identical. So there are also very basic questions to ask about the mechanisms that we need to challenge. And also to examine other organisms, which is something we, we, we try to do a little bit. We don't really work with mice, but we try to examine it in other organisms, organisms that are that separated from uh, from the worms millions of years ago. Um, but not only that, we also have other questions that we ask regarding the nature of memory, how memory is encoded. Uh, and again, C. elegans poses some uh, difficulties to neuroscience. Um, uh, uh, some of the mechanisms that are uh, uh, missing in C. elegans and still the worm uh, can behave and learn certain things. And also, uh, and also, the fact that we can't really understand its nervous system despite its simplicity. That's, uh, we, we have to be humble. Just, you know, 302 neurons. And still, we don't really understand how it works. While in parallel, there are huge projects to 
solve the the human brain and so on, which is much more complex. Actually, that that brings me to a to a question I I'd very much like to hear your opinion on, which is. Um, so for C. elegans, as you say, you have 302 neurons. They're characterized. They have names. <laughs> <laughs> I guess people have their favorites and so forth. And not only that, and perhaps more importantly, you have a full wiring diagram of, of the brain. And of course, when you go to mammalian neuroscience or human neuroscience, there's a giant push to invest in, in building the full connectome or, or describing the full connectome of the brain. And at times, it sounds a bit like... Um, like the, the the rhetoric around the human genome project, which is we will understand the you know, physiology once we have the blueprint of a person. And as you're saying, for an, an organism that's a lot simpler and has a, a much smaller uh, number of, of of neurons and, and not to offend any worm, but a behaviorally less complex uh, repertoire, perhaps. Um, so if from your point of view, if tomorrow we had a full wiring uh, diagram of the human brain, for example, um, what would that change in our understanding of, of neuroscience? So the, the connectome for the worm is very helpful. And some behaviors uh, are understood in resolution that you can't reach in other organisms. And, you, and that's also you see how certain things work and you truly understand them. And probably some of this could be done in, in higher organisms or more complicated organisms with a more complicated brain. But it's certainly not enough. It's, it's clear that a lot happens um, outside of the connectome or in parallel to the connectome, secretion of neuropeptides, many, many processes, and that we just can't, it's not enough to just look at the, at the connectome and under, to understand what happened. And moreover, it, it changes all the time. Uh, and it's different between between individuals. That will definitely be the case in humans, uh, but it's also probably the case in C. elegans. We have a, a connectome of, of the worm for more than 30 years at an EM resolution. And that was a, a, use in the, a huge endeavor. Uh, no one wanted to do the second connectome because it's a lot of work. But recently, people did more EM reconstructions of additional connectomes. And you can see that they are a little different. A little, and that's despite the fact that the worms are isogenic uh, and, and it was assumed to be completely hardwired. Uh, and these differences are also, you know, it's, 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 it's another level of, of complexity. When it comes to the human brain, the context the content, uh, continuously changes, that will be a big problem. Um, so I, I, it, 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 it would help. Some things will be learned for sure, but it, it will, won't be enough. It's not the human genome. The human genome was also not enough, but it's closer. After a decade running his own lab and training 10 graduate students and postdocs in the process, Oded's anti-dogmatic views on transgenerational inheritance are now firmly within the mainstream. I think it's evolution and probably I'm, I'm uh, at the establishment. Um, but I try to, you know, I don't remember this exact uh, quote, but I try to, to contradict myself or at least to allow the students to contradict me. And I encourage them to do experiments uh, without telling me. And then to, you know, to come once they already have some results. That's okay with me. And sometimes it, it works. And I'm sure that I'm the establishment when it comes to a, a other, to, to transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. There I'm the establishment. 
In other fields, when we start a new project, I tell the students that they need to know the literature better than me after a year, something like that. And, and I think that this is really should, this should be the model that they are like independent researchers and we are the, we provide the funding and uh, some guidance uh, with the, the, the experience that we acquire over the years, but, uh, but they should be really, they should, the, the new ideas could, should eventually come from them. Um, I, I assume that we'll, we will become more and more boring as, as the years pass. As, as much as we'll try to fight it, it's, it's inevitable. So when, when you're recruiting new students or when they're coming to you, do, are they surprised by this approach? It, it, it used to be more common uh, in some ways or in some places, but now it's becoming more and more that there's a preset project and there are time limits and all these things. How do they react, your, your candidates? So I think they know this when they choose our lab. They know that this that it's a lab where you, you're supposed to take risks and some things might not work. They are aware. And and also that uh, the time a little uh, crazy in the, in this uh, aspect. Uh, but not all of them. Some some of them need more guidance. Some of them want to do more, uh, you know, a safe project. What I try to do also is take people from very different fields. So now I have a student who didn't even, who just joined the lab with, who's worked in, studied economy and worked in investing, but he's very smart. He's, he's joining the lab. He's you know, learning the biology now. Um, I had some people from physics and math in the past, and, and I try to do this more and more. Um, if I just recruit uh, C-elegance researchers, they'll, they'll hit the ground running and they'll do great work, but it will bias us towards a certain direction. I try to take these, as, these students as well, or postdocs. They are amazing. I have a few joining now. But I also want to take very, very different people. You, you mentioned earlier that one of your interests is in irrationality. Um, is this what your economist is going to be working on? Yeah, actually, that's, that's the case. Yeah, he works on, he, he's working on that, on economic irrationality. In Worms? In Worms. Yeah, yeah. We already had one paper published on that. It's a pretty, I'm, I'm very proud of this paper. I think it's really cool. It was published um, in Nature Communication uh, two years ago. Um, uh, and it's, uh, you can look it up. It's called the uh, Bounded Rationality uh, in C-Elegance Nematodes or something like that. More complicated name. Uh, and it's a collaboration with, uh, with uh, a neuroeconomist from, uh, from the university, Dino Levy. It was, it's one of the most fun projects I've had. We also worked on it for many, many years. And there, we, what we, we studied, I mean, people have shown, Kahneman and Tversky and others, that, uh, that people act irrationally when it comes to, to the decisions that they make. For example, uh, when you have to, uh, you don't maximize the value of your decisions. Of your of your choices. So if you uh, and and we wanted to, st but but normally the explanation and this uh, you know Kahneman uh, Tversky got the Nobel Prize for that. Kahneman got the Nobel Prize for that. Tversky unfortunately died before he would have won the the Nobel Prize. But most of the explanations come from uh, from the realm of psychology. You, you you don't do it because of emotions or regret or things like. We wanted to understand the the underlying biology. So. We studied whether worms make irrational decisions. And, and what we chose and, and what the, the student that joined will, will do other things. Guy, he will, he will study other paradigms. What, what we showed in that paper is that uh, we studied a particular paradigm that's called uh, independence of irrelevant alternatives. What it means is that 
let's say you have a preference. You prefer oranges over apples. Okay? You like the taste of oranges better than you like the taste of apples. It turns out that in certain situations, if I add another fruit, let's say pears, suddenly it would change your preference. You'll prefer apples over oranges. And this has been shown in humans, studied forever. There are many, many studies on this. It wasn't clear about why this is the case. So we wanted to do the exact same thing in C. elegans. So we let the worms choose between two different orders in the presence or absence of another order. They just let the same thing. And the worms do chemotaxis. They move towards this order. Uh, and um, the, the power of C. elegans is that we know for each order which individual neuron or pair of neurons sense it. So we can see how uh, the decisions that the worm make are influenced by the involvement of different circuits or by the activations of different neurons in the circuit. And what we found when we did these experiments, it's really remarkable in my opinion, we found that the worms, most of the time, they behave very, very rationally. They, so they prefer A over B, even in the presence of C, even when you increase the concentration of C and C and make it more and more attractive. That is true for most of the cases. However, in certain situations, the addition of C will make them switch and they'll prefer B over A. And this happens when C takes more resources from the sensations of order A than from the sensation of order B. It's a very simple clash. And we can make genetically engineered worms that are more or less rational by changing the resources that we allocate to the sensation of each order. And this parallels things that have been observed with regard to, to other irrationalities, or quote-unquote, to other uh, illusions, for example, to visual illusions. Some visual illusions stem from the exact same principle. So we think that in certain situations, bad decisions or irrational decisions could be stemming just because of limitations of the nervous system, of, of how it calculates or from boundaries of neurons and how they fire. You don't need to involve emotions or any higher cognitive functions. It could just be the limitations of how neuron works. So it sounds like it's it's rational at, at the cell circuit level, but irrational at the organismal level. It's a resource allocation problem being solved by, by cells. Yeah, yeah. And there could also be a reason for that. What appears to be a reason could actually be, what appears to be a bug could be a feature. In certain cases, this is not the case. But it's clear that some of the bad decisions that we make result from heuristics, heuristics that we take, from limitations, uh, for, for, for wanting to, to make a decision fast. Uh, because it's a more common um, stimuli that you will encounter, not necessarily uh, because you don't have to maximize all the value in the world and you know take any everything into into uh, consideration. But it's nice because in Silent you can actually ask these questions and 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 see it at the at the neuronal and mechanistic level. And finally, of course, we also have to discuss a little bit your your other life as a social media star. So. And and I noticed that right before we we had this conversation, you you put up a Joe Pesci meme, the famous uh, "Am I a clown? Am I here to amuse you?" Um, so that has a little bit of an edge, no, uh, in the terms. So does does that um, reflect uh, any level of negative feedback on this participation? Yeah. So I started with Twitter, you know, just for fun. It wasn't strategic at all. And I enjoy it. And when I see a good 
meme or a video or something funny, I have to caption it. I can't control it. It's an addiction. I have to do it. And I do it very, you know, fast without thinking so much. So I, I, I often also erase tweets that I think I shouldn't have tweeted. But, um, and it became a thing and become, uh, and many people see it. And I get many good things out of it. Good feedback. You know, I learned to, I, I, met, I met you and we interacted. That's fun. And, 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 and also Twitter, there are, there are many good aspects of Twitter, but I also think that it probably reflects badly on me sometimes because scientists likes to feel, likes to feel uh, respectable and serious. Uh, and, you know, I have many agendas in my tweets. I make fun of peer review. I make fun of all kinds of things. But the overall theme, the things that I care about the most is battling against the pomposity of scientists and taking yourself too serious. And so and I think that it's very important because um, it's a shame that we limit ourselves like that, uh, that we have to be serious all the time. And I think you can be not serious, you can make jokes and, and criticize the system and still have serious research. And I think that, but I'm sure not everyone sees it that way. And I'm sure that in certain situations where, where I was appraised uh, or in certain evaluation committees, someone raised an eyebrow and, uh, it, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and said, you know, this person, uh, you know, uh, we don't need the, this sort of type of clown around us or something like this. I'm sure that happened, but I can live with that. I can live with that and I think that the good overweights the bad and, and, uh, and that I get more out of it that, than what I lose. But there is, a, there is a price and you have to be careful on, on, on Twitter not to, to upset anyone. And this can happen because of nonsense, as you know. But uh, uh, so I do it. I can't control it. I try to limit myself. I also, uh, yeah, you know, uh, had an exchange with you about how to do it. It's very, very difficult. It's almost impossible. But but I looked at my analytics yesterday. I don't do this often. And I saw that I, I'm really, you know, losing it less. I'm using it less. I'm, I'm, I'm down 25% or something like this. So I'm proud of myself. <laughs> but let's see how long it lasts. It's, it's interesting that it, it seems to have been the social media platform that took off for scientists, right? They're... I don't know if it's because of, of the, the format itself, that, that it's more uh, punchy and to the point. And, and somehow, for me at least, I don't know if this has been your experience, but I, I, and, and I don't use other social media platforms anymore, but it was much easier to structure a community. Like on, for example, I haven't used Facebook in a decade, but when I did, um, the sort of crazy comments from someone's racist uncle would would eventually filter in, you know, and that doesn't happen on on Twitter, I, on, at least on science Twitter. I know that there are other problems. It seems to be a community that's very geared towards, you know, support and helping people. And, I, and you see people beginning projects together, sharing papers, sharing reagents. Um, it's it's for all the toxicity of social media. It seems to have a, a, a very strangely positive dynamic uh, with with the scientific community. I, I agree. I also didn't use Facebook. Never. Uh, I, I was on it, but never used it. And and I, I share your uh, feeling that it's mostly positive. And I don't know why it catched so well with the scientific community, but it did. And most of the exchange is is, uh, is uh, supportive and positive. Some time, every once in a while, someone gets in the in the middle of a controversy. 
sometimes uh, for no good reason, but most of the times they said something uh, that they shouldn't have said. So it, it's, uh, it's self-correcting. But I do think we live in a bubble and in some corners of Twitter, there's very bad things going on. I wonder how you deal with it, actually, because I try to avoid COVID as much as I can. I want to say things about it. And I'm on the side of enlightenment in the thing that I think about uh, COVID, although I'm not an, an immunologist, but obviously, uh, you know, I, I have the right thoughts uh, that would be approved by our community or the, the people that we interact with on, on Twitter. But I know that people get into a lot of trouble clashing with anti-vaxxers and things like that. I tried it a little bit. That was in Hebrew. And, and that was really violent. And I, I, I promised myself that I will just avoid it because and this is the part where, where uh, uh, the, the, the bubble that we create gets uh, burst and we experience the real world. And I don't know if you experienced it, but I see it around me all the time. I, I think earlier earlier in the pandemic, I, I experienced more of it, particularly when I was doing the updates um, for, for Nature Medicine. Um, but I, I developed a few working principles, which I, I don't think are particularly creative but one of them is the thing to understand about these social media platforms is that it's an attention economy right and this is really hard to to explain to people when they're new but to say if you're drawing attention to something it doesn't matter if you're making a negative comment about it if you're saying this is wrong if you put this person in the spotlight the algorithm pushes them up right so if a bit of disinformation and some people engage directly and i see some accounts you know doing valiant uh, battle, uh, uh, you know, uh, and sometimes getting very, very bad vitriolic comments uh, and sometimes threats. And of course, it's always worse uh, with women uh, when, when they engage. And there are several ugly aspects to this. So for me, the way to go is if I see a claim that is wrong on some new medications, I don't engage with the person making the claim. I put up the right information, right? And if that's trending, I so I, I try as much as possible not to I, I don't know if in, in the long run this is good or not but it has worked for me instead of directly rebutting um some some piece of misinformation i'll go and, and put up you know what what it seems to be the correct or the most uh, the most uh, the, be the best available information on the topic at the time right so to to stay um i'm not uh, anyone who knows me so i'm not a particularly positive person in in real life but on, on, on in this kind of thing, it, it pays more to put out the right information than to boost the, the wrong information, which is really counterintuitive, but it's what you're doing. I mean, every once in a while, there is a slam dunk takedown, but it's very rare, right? And, and it works even when it's referring to things that are outside of, of the social media, that are in traditional, for example, journal publication, um, in this conspiracy universe, when a paper is retracted because it was wrong, because maybe, you know, Mentos and Coca-Cola does not cure acute COVID or something, that becomes part of the conspiracy narrative, right? That becomes, oh, you know, big something had it withdrawn from journal X, Y, or Z. So it's very hard to engage directly with misinformation and not push it up. Yeah, because... it, and, 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 it, and, and you don't know what would work. So, for example, I think that people celebrated the novelty of the mRNA vaccines because they wanted to celebrate you know, the progress in science and how amazing it is that they uh, they did the vaccine so well and, and so fast, but that was spun 
into something bad by the people that say that it is novel, so it's un untested and so on, which is not true. But once you started it, it's impossible. So, so you don't know how it will turn out. Yeah, and, and it's clearly had an, an impact in some places much more than others. You know, and, and, and it, it also has to do with just the general level different societies have of trust. And, and it's not always uh, obvious what those will be. So in corresponding with friends in Japan, for example, I found out that the degree of overall vac vaccine uh, hesitancy or skepticism over there long preceded COVID and made huge dents in things like the HPV vaccine. So there, there was sort of a sustained problem. And, and it's also difficult, I think, for, for the scientific community to engage with this sort of thing because um, there's a misconception on our part that this is happening because of a lack of information. And it's actually because of a presence of bad information. So when you get one of these anti-vax guys, uh, one of these anti-vax people normally they are not in an information vacuum. They have an incredibly rich, sophisticated literature. They spend more time on this probably than the person who just goes out and gets vaccinated. And they they go they cherry pick peer reviewed studies. They, they some there's always an engineer or another who is going to show you how the biology is all wrong because you know and then there's that tempting uh, once it's math it's magically objective kind of aspect of discourse. But it's not. This kind of thing, I think, and I think this is very difficult for us to accept that you're coming in and bringing the knowledge, right? It's there is a presence of bad knowledge, and then that's really different, right? Because people invested in that a lot, they they read a lot, they write a lot, they have their own groups, so it's difficult to get in that. And the other thing for me with COVID that was extremely important is I, I'm a biologist, and this was my rule, and this was something where I, I called people that I knew who, who were at one time or another unwittingly violating it, which is, say, you, if you're not a doctor, don't give medical advice, right? Um, and and, and I, I would get messages from people who say, I have this or that condition, I have this autoimmune disease, I have this, should I take this? And, and I would simply refuse to, to answer very politely the client say look I, I am not a doctor i cannot give you advice on you know what you should go to the pharmacy and take right but many times the questions that they ask is do i get vaccinated and that's your and there you're willing to say yes yes but so i i don't get a lot of those but i i get more of when people write i have this specific condition mm -hmm. right? should i get vaccinated uh -huh. or i'm i'm under chemo or radiotherapy of this kind should I get vaccinated? And then it's not a linear answer because, for example, some kinds of live attenuated vaccines uh, are, are not a good idea if you're in, in a particularly uh, immune suppressor vulnerable mm -hmm. state. And this long precedes COVID, right? And there are best practices. And, and you don't know about each. I mean, medicine is an individual thing, right? You have to know about the person in front of you. And you also say, I mean, people say it's your responsibility to talk about COVID because the information, you have to put the right information out there. As you said, it's not a problem of there's no information. It's the, the problem that there's bad information there. So the, the, the question of whether should I get involved in that or not is, is not so simple. And I learned that some topics, it's extremely difficult to, to, to discuss on Twitter. It's not, it's not a great platform for discussing anything. So I won't touch politics uh, at all, although I'm a liberal and, uh, you know, Left and but I won't I won't do it because, like you said, it puts someone in a spotlight to to now make a big deal out of uh, of something and, and attack you. So 
I know I know the limitations of the platform, and I I decided uh, not too long ago, you know, to narrow what I discuss and what I don't. It's just too there's too much to lose, and and it's it's not a real good platform for debating and discussing any topic on in the world. No, I I do think it's been interesting to see some people sort of pushing the envelope. So, for example, Florian Kramer at Mount Sinai had a, something like a hundred and forty tweet thread explaining pretty much everything about the vaccines. And it was a masterpiece. It was as good as any review. And who reached tweet number 140? That's a, that's a, it's really challenging. A, a lot of people because you can see the likes on each tweet in the thread, right? So this, this sort of uh, magnum opus went, went viral. And, and you do see, in terms of interdisciplinarity, you, you see people talking who probably normally wouldn't that are connected through mm. different things. Um, you see people interacting with the funding agencies and the journals, and, uh, uh, and, and, and it's, it's great because this is happening in an open forum, right? So you do get to see interactions that would be closed, um, and everybody, as you said, tries to be on their best behavior, which I think is, is great for everybody. I mean, there are histories of, I'm sure you have your own, of people who have received unpleasant messages from somebody who shouldn't have sent it, either from a funding agency or from a journal or from a reviewer for something like that. Whereas out here, we're all trying to be civilized. <laughs> One of the things I know you mentioned when, when you were interviewed by the Embo Communications team um, was uh, that you would like to use this membership to organize more interdisciplinary meetings and um, I'm curious if you have a topic in mind of what would make for a good interdisciplinary uh, meeting right now. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, as you know, we organized uh, just before the pandemic, the physiologically relevant conference, the Woodstock of Biology, as it was uh, later uh, dubbed. And uh, there what worked well is that there wasn't any plan, there wasn't any topic. It was truly interdisciplinary in the way uh, uh, because you can just present whatever you want if you want to come there and present something about biology. And it sounds perhaps too wild, but, uh, but too unorganized or unstructured, but, but it worked. I think that I can uh, probably come up with, with more narrow topics for an interdisciplinary meeting. But perhaps this is something that can be just, you know, emerged uh, bottom up without too much planning. Uh, especially if you, if you build it around a community with, where the science is excellent, like the EMBO community. Uh, there are so many different topics studies and uh, studied, and everyone is a good scientist. So if you use this as the backbone and build around it, I think uh, something uh, interesting can come up. That tracks well with with your description of how the Dead Sea Scrolls project began. Uh, that you were, I think, in, in one podcast you said you got on a bus, and eight years later you were still on a bus. Yeah, that's exactly how it happened. There was no planning involved. <laughs> 